The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain on which Jesus had ordered them. When they all saw him, they worshipped, but they doubted. Then Jesus approached and said to them, All power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Well, three uh, kind of uh, more announcements or just uh, things not, not specifically related to Scripture, uh, but I think are important for us to note. Uh, the first one is progressive solemnity. So one of the things you'll notice is the 8 o'clock Mass. We've kind of, uh, we don't have any music. Um, we kind of have it a little bit lower. That's uh, for a few different reasons. Um, but there's an idea within the liturgy that... Uh, there's a progressive solemnity. So there's sometimes things where you do more, certain liturgies that you want to do more on and certain liturgies where you want to do less on so that you can kind of show forth what's important and what's not important. Ideally, for every weekend Mass, there would be singing and perhaps uh, incense, uh, but we don't necessarily aren't able to do that, but we're going to try to do that on the really important days where we really try to have extra singing or kind of extra things because the singing forth is that. We notice that within the liturgy very clearly within the Gloria, that the Gloria is actually omitted during Lent and Advent, partly to give it a more solemn tone, that there's not that singing of the Gloria and kind of that extra joy. There's kind of a little bit more subdued within that. One of the things you also notice is I'm not a big uh, singer uh, necessarily, but I try to do it for the most important parts. And so the most important parts are during the Alleluia, before the gospel, right? Again, giving this the significance, we stand up, right? Again, that progressive solemnity that we stand up for the reading of the gospel and we sit down for the other reading of the scripture. Um, but we sing the, uh, the Alleluia before. And the other thing that I make sure to chant uh, at every Mass is the doxology at the very end of the Eucharistic prayer, which you'll notice when the priest holds up the, the, what has become Jesus Christ in the Eucharist and uh, through him and with him and in him. Um, and this doxology of offering, and it's the culmination of the entire Eucharistic liturgy that's offering everything to the Father. And so you'll notice that as well. So today, the only two times that we are praying or singing in this kind of progressive solemnity are those two really important parts. Uh, you'll notice it in other liturgies as well. So just want you to have a little bit of an eye for that. As well as if you attend other masses, uh, one of the other things that we'll, uh, we've changed, uh, there's different mass settings. So uh, the the Gloria, how the Gloria is sung, the Holy, 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 and those we've kind of changed throughout the season. So there was a different one. We, we did Lent, uh, Latin during Lent. Uh, we tried a new one during Easter, and now we're back to the one that we've uh, done for many years uh, now during ordinary time. And so if you attend another Mass, you can also notice that kind of change of the liturgical seasons. So those are just things to be aware of that we're doing that's supposed to help form you in the liturgy in terms of understanding what's important and what's not. Second thing I'll mention, uh, we're so grateful to be able to have uh, communion back at its normal time. 
which is a great gift to be able to receive communion and then to be able to go back and give thanksgiving to God for that and have a moment of prayer instead of being kicked out the door. Uh, although uh, in, within the liturgy, the Eucharist, receiving of the Eucharist is at the end of the liturgy, and so it's kind of uh, like you're kicked out the door anyways because there's just one more prayer and a blessing, and then you're out the door uh, to again go bring Jesus to the world, but we're grateful for that time uh, of prayer um, and, and to be able to not have to bring everything with you, right, when you exit out of the door. One of the other uh, changes that I'd like to just mention with, uh, in this that now we're allowed is that uh, the communion time, I know that there's different, um, what do I say, uh, traditions, different, um, uh, different expectations at times, uh, but I would like to just mention that communion time is a time for communion. And so there's nothing wrong with somebody who's, who's not receiving communion to come up uh, and indicate with their, with their arms blessed to receive a blessing. But just to note, that's not the purpose of communion time, right? And so I try to not make it a big deal. And in fact, uh, what I would encourage, if you're not going to receive communion, if you're not able to for whatever reason it is, um, whatever reason, uh, that you can remain in the pew and continue to pray, and then you don't have to be worried about getting up in a line and being distracted by all that. Just remain in your pew and keep on praying. That's perfectly sufficient. If you would like to come up uh, and receive a blessing, there's nothing wrong with that as well. Uh, I would just like to encourage uh, people that you can remain in your pew and continue to pray in that way. The third thing, the last thing, um, I continue to work on my homilies. If you haven't noticed, uh, I haven't written down everything word for word because I'm really slow at that. Um, And so what I try to do is is major points, which sometimes help, sometimes uh, hinder, especially if you're at the Saturday evening mass. That's always my first try and kind of the rough draft in some ways. Uh, You get a little bit better because I've kind of been thinking about it during the night and trying to hone it in. Uh, But what I really appreciate is people who give feedback on my homilies, um, even criticisms. I know that my homilies are longer. Uh, Some people hate that. Some people don't mind that. Um, it's important for me to know that, right? So I actually keep a timer and actually record my homilies, even though that I hate listening to myself. So I often don't listen to them, but I always know how long I go, uh, which is always longer than I necessarily intend. Uh, but one of the, uh, the things that would be most helpful for feedback for my homilies, which I'm actually asking for, is what stuck out to you. That's when somebody, try, somebody says a good homily, Father, uh, I always say, well, you know, why, Right? Why was it a good homily? Because different people pick up different things. And so it's important for me to know what actually sticks with you and what doesn't, right? What made sense, what didn't? And I can make those changes and kind of adjustments because there are certain times where I've uh, made an adjustment because I've thought that a point wasn't, you know, uh, wasn't important and, and didn't necessarily hit. And I've taken that out. And then later on in the week, I've talked to a person. They've been like, oh, no, that was the most important. You know, that's what I really took from the homily. So if uh, after Mass, thankfully, I'll be able to actually go out and meet you and I'll be out there. So if there's something that strikes you in the homily, please uh, come up and talk to me about that um, so that I can, again, use it for the other liturgies as well. You can always message me um, and just continue to help myself uh, in the midst of this all. So that's uh, just a free reign for you. Hopefully, 
to help me and not just criticize and say that my homilies are bad, right? That's not very helpful. Uh, hopefully some, some criticism. I'm okay with criticism of saying certain things didn't make sense or help, uh, but also things that do help. All right, so now onto the scripture, onto Holy Trinity. Why are we here? Why are we here today? Now, that question, why, um, is a great question. And kids sometimes use it to exhaustion, right? They're really inquisitive. Why this? Why that? Why that? And we kind of get tired of it because we don't always know the answer why. And it often forces us to go a little bit deeper. But I think it's a really important question for us to ask that often in our life, why do we do something? Why do we not do something? Why are we here today, not just in a surface level, but in a deeper level? Why did we come to Mass today, right? What was, what was the motivation behind it? Why are we here in Japan? Again, more than just the service level, why are we serving in this way? And then why are we here in an even deeper level is why do we even exist, right? Why are we here today in existence? And I think it's important for us to ask because it helps us to form ourselves in terms of knowing what we're supposed to do. Um, One of the best answers of kind of why are we here at kind of the deepest level, uh, I think comes from the Baltimore Catechism. Now, the Baltimore Catechism is kind of this old school uh, kind of catechesis teaching about the faith that was made when a whole bunch of bishops came together in Baltimore and kind of wrote up some questions and answers. And I love uh, one of the questions that comes up right away at the beginning is it says, why did God make you? So that's kind of the question. And then the response that's already written out uh, is says, God made me to know him, to love him, and to serve him in this world and to be happy with him forever in heaven. Now that is a profoundly deep response. Sometimes the criticism of the Baltimore Catechism or that type of uh, learning is is that you learn the words, but you don't really know what that means, which I totally get. But it's also important to know know that and hopefully go a little bit deeper with that as well. And so I'd like to just point out, you know, to know, love, and serve, right? So part of our knowledge and importance of why God made us is to know him. And we actually see that within the Old Testament and specifically the first reading today is that Moses is pointing out to the Israelite people that our, their God is different than any other God of the nations. That God has actually revealed himself and actually helped them in ways that other gods throughout the, throughout the different cultures and all the different times have done. That God is a God who helps a particular people and also reveals himself to be known by his people. And we ourselves not only have the great gift of the Old Testament in the revelation of of God, but also the knowledge of Jesus Christ, that part of the reason I am convinced that one of the major reasons why Jesus Christ became man, the second person of the Trinity became man, is so that we can know God. Not just that he might be our creator, but that we might know him. Because he reveals himself in the Old Testament. He reveals himself in the fullness, especially in Jesus Christ. 
And what does this knowledge that Jesus Christ reveals when he comes? Well, he reveals a lot of confusing things. That's for sure. A lot in scripture where we're like, Jesus, what are you trying to get at? Not exactly sure, right? Some confusing language and different things. And certainly the early church fathers and the early church struggled to understand what Jesus meant or exactly who Jesus was and who God is. But God reveals himself, sends his Holy Spirit to guide us. And one of the important knowledges that we learn about God is that God is Trinity. God is Trinity. This is Holy Trinity Sunday. And so what's so special about the Trinity? Well, if you uh, happen to be on Facebook, uh, I posted earlier this week, uh, actually it's called Lutheran Satire, and it's, uh, it's uh, uh, like bad animation, but really funny interaction between uh, some Irishmen when St. Patrick goes to evangelize them and St. Patrick is trying to con- uh, explain the Trinity. Um, it's funny, you should watch it. Uh, but it also explains how difficult the Trinity is in that St. Patrick tries to explain it like a three-leaf clover, which there's not actually any evidence that he did. Uh, but there's problems with that because that doesn't really explain the Trinity. The Trinity is super confusing. So what do we take from it? Do we just take confusion? Hopefully not. Do we just take it as a mystery? Hopefully not. One of the things that we can take from the Trinity, whether we understand it completely or not, is that God, at one of the most, one of the most important uh, core understandings of who God is, is that God is Trinity. Three persons in one being. And what does that tell us about God? It tells us that God is a God of relationship. That God is not, again, I've said this, an isolated being. But instead, at the very heart of who God is in Trinity is a God of relationship. That's why we're able to say God is love. Because God pours out his love and is sharing his love constantly within the Trinity. And so we see that God is a God of relationship, a God of love. And that at the heart is the reason why he has created us to share in that relationship, to share in that goodness. And this is, again, this knowledge that God is Trinity, that God is relationship, should change the way in which we approach him. Because God does not uh, just look over us, not just create us, but invites us into that relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in that knowledge, we're able to love him more, we're able to serve him more, and we're also able to be with, happy with him for eternity in heaven. Now, one of the uh, beautiful uh, ideas that this helps uh, also kind of unpack is that we're made in the image and likeness of God. Now, we're not made in the image of likeness of God in the fact that we have eyes and a nose and ears and two feet, right? That's not how we're made in the image and likeness of God. We're made in the image of likeness of God. I would like to say a few things. One of them is free will, that we have choice, uh, that we can love, which is a consequence of free will, Uh, but also that we are beings of relationship. 
And I think that's one of the great uh, downfalls of COVID and our modern environment is when it isolates us, right? Satan loves isolation. He loves darkness. He loves division because it isolates us. But instead, God is a God of unity, a God of relationship, and that's what God wants to pursue. Now, how does God even work that image and likeness within our very bodies, right? It's not just within our psyche. It's not just within our soul, but even within our very bodies. This theology of the body has shown us about how we're made as beings of relationship and that we see that the family is actually an image. Not only uh, marriage is sometimes often shown as a an image of the covenantal love between God the Father or God and the Israelite people, that faithfulness. But marriage is also this great image of relationship and trinity and of outpouring of goodness and love. Because when a man and a woman come together and love each other so greatly, a third person can come forth, right? That this love between individuals is not meant to be isolated and self-serving, but is instead generous and overflowing. And so we see this within even the way that God has made our body and the world to show forth his image and likeness within humanity. Now, this God of relationship, we can sometimes see as a a distance God because he's not always... um, He's not walking with us. We would really like to have Jesus back with us and walking, you know, get to talk to him face to face, right? Because humans do really good with that relationship. But uh, God is still present in a way in which is most effective to us because God is God and he knows us, even though that it's not the easiest, it is the best for us, is that he sent his Holy Spirit to be with us and present with us, that God is present within all of creation, But he's especially present. I'd like to give a little bit of teaser for next week for Corpus Christi, for the body, blood, uh, the, the feast day of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, which is the Eucharist. And that Jesus says in the gospel today that I will be with you until the end of the age. I will always be with you. And Jesus Christ is always with us, especially in the presence of the most holy Eucharist. And so God is a God of relationship. He is present here with us. Jesus Christ did not leave us and abandon us, but sent his Holy Spirit and continues to be present with us within the Eucharist. And so may we approach that God as a God of relationship, a God of love, to know, love, and to serve him in this life and to be happy with him forever in heaven. Now, lastly, this last line in the gospel to just kind of leave you with, a lot of these things might be difficult. A lot of these things you might say, okay, well, it sort of makes sense, but how does it make sense? Well, even the apostles struggled even uh, after Jesus Christ had suffered, died, and rose again from the dead. It says that they, at the beginning of the gospel today, they all saw him, they worshiped, but they doubted. And we ourselves, I think, can come and sometimes come to worship God and doubt. Now, doubt is a pretty strong word. I would kind of uh, say more of a struggle, right? Um, Doubting goes a little bit further, I would say, to a certain degree. And I think the apostles just kind of were struggling. We're like, I don't understand this, right? And that's okay. The apostles do it, and we ourselves also do it. But let us come to worship God. Let us come to worship him 
even in the midst of our struggles and doubts.